Welcome back to another edition of the Disney Dish Podcast with Jim Hill. It's me, Len Testa, and this is our show for the week of Schmerz Day, February 26th, 2024. Happy birthday to my dear friend, Larissa, who's awesome, and everyone should know that. On the show today, news, including the return of the bendy Eiffel Tower, plus surveys and listener questions. Then in our main segment, Jim tells us how Tomorrowland got added to Disneyland's opening day lineup about this time back in 1955. Let's get started by bringing in the man who says that you can't change the people around you, but you can change the people around you. It's Mr. Jim Hill. Jim, how's it going? Quick question, though. Did you get the seersucker suit that I sent you? You know, I, I, now, I, I realize <laughs> something that wrinkled borders on a fashion risk, but you do spend an awful lot of time in Orlando. And more the point, we are headed into the hot summer months, and cotton is a very breathable fabric. It is, and the uh, the mint julep that you sent along with it was delightful. Thank you. Good. Glad to hear that you like that. But could you at least try the deerstalker cap? I mean, I, I, I'm, I'm trying for kind of an only murders in the building vibe do you see that they're not going to be they're not going to be in the upper west side for season four they're going to la well partially that that you know in fact the they i was reading something from the creator uh and he mentioned you know from, from god himself the creator or are you talking about the, the showrunner that, that's exactly <laughs> he's he is also a fan of this hulu show which by the way did so well when they repurposed it last month on abc oh yeah yeah already planning on season two and three yeah coming over there same thing i was like la but it's only for a little bit supposedly so and then they're back to new york i love that we're in this period where the writer's strike is over and you know shows are kind of getting back to normal but we still have that occasional filler here or there where it's like welcome to cbs we've got jimmy kimmel doing shadow puppets at 11 30 <laughs> okay yeah, yeah it's cheap it's unscripted it's fine go ahead go with it well just last night nancy was watching some show that was hosted by a dolly parton that it featured dogs a dog fashion show and it was like i'd watch literally that this is prime time, you know, two mm-hmm. hours. And it was and like, did Dolly oh. sing? Cause I mean, we're like, we're like a, uh, uh, one comedian away from a variety show there. You're not wrong, but she did sing. She did. Sing. All right. Jim, let's do a quick shout out to our Patreon subscribers. Thanks to everyone who subscribes to the show over at patreon.com slash Jim Hill media, including Greg C, Daphne Fullerton, Dwayne Solly. Hey Dwayne, Nicholas Austin, Kevin Flynn, and Carol Cantwell. Jim, these lawyers at Hondo Tanaka and Associates Esquire want you to know that if you or someone you love was employed by the First Order and encountered unsafe working conditions, such as coaxium exposure or insufficient seats to near, inside your escape pod, you may be entitled to galactic credit compensation. True story. <laughs> Hondo Tanaka and Associates. Because he's playing oh. both sides. Isn't that a perfect Hondo Tanaka thing? I put some thought into this, man. <laughs> On to the news. All right, folks, the news is sponsored by touringplans.com. Touring Plans helps you save time and money at theme parks like Walt Disney World. Check us out at touringplans.com. All right, Jim, shocker here. Disney's filed a construction permit that includes demolition at the old NBA experience. And Jim, if I had a 40 of malt liquor, I'd be pouring it out now. But I know it's not going to be Meow Wolf. It's not going to be an Omega Mart, but a man can dream, Jim. More to the point, with this next structure, whatever is going into that place, can we at least make it inflatable? You know, just sort of. <laughs> exactly. I mean, you know what? You know. <laughs> we know it's not a spirit Halloween, but other than that, it could be anything. Actually, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of uh, I'm kind of excited because the fact that they include demo means they have plans for it. 
When people talk these days about the impact of, you know, the, the eco impact when you use concrete, and it's like, oh, come on, literally inside of what, five years, we're, we're back to, you know, filling this cavity, and it's just... Uh, pick something smart this time around, guys, please. It's got to be something big for a space. We'll see. Uh, you know, I'm excited. And, and like I said, we're, we're starting to see like the very early hints that, uh, that Disney is going to get started on, uh, on more construction stuff. I don't expect to hear anything now until summer, uh, you know, the D23 conference. I think that's when we'll start hearing announcements. But uh, yeah, demolition is interesting. Also, uh, tease this at the top of the show, but soaring around the world. Returns to Epcot February 28th, 2024. So right now it's uh, Soarin' Over California. We're going to get uh, Soarin' Around the World, including the uh, the bendy Eiffel Tower visuals uh, at the end of the month. I have to admit, I've been watching on social media the reaction to this. And, and you know, people are, are behaving like they're losing a beloved relative. I mean, it's just sort of like, I mean, I get, all right, the Eiffel Tower, the, the Eiffel Tower bends. But is is it really that bad? I mean, this is this version, Soaring Over California, is the better of the two films. We all agree on that, right? I guess for me, you know, I just remember the people talking about soaring over fantasy, where you know it was literally fly over Bell's Village, fly over Agrabah, fly, you know, and it's like that would have been all CG, and and you know, people would have loved that. Yeah, well, that that we expect CG on, but I think you know the when it's nature, especially in Epcot, which is. You know, for lack of a better reference, it's kind of a fact-based park. It just rubbed a lot of people the wrong way. And, and you know, with, with justification, with, with reason, right? What was interesting is the creators of Soaring Around the World. And I, I got to interview them prior to the, the actual launch of it in the parks. And what they talked about is that was a deliberate choice. The notion was that they wanted to put things in you know the animals in each of the shots and that sort of thing to uh, to increase repeatability the notion of you would go back and oh well, hey look there were there were whales or there were elephants or, or you know that sort of thing to you know oh uh, but clearly you know that the public does not see it that way it's like do not like cg elephants this is the thing that you and I have been talking about ever since we did the uh, the thing at MIT. But I have this like working theory that sometimes the fans will tell Disney what the parks are supposed to be, uh, you know. So yeah, anyway, speaking of Epcot, though, Jim, I ran around uh, the middle of Epcot on Tuesday morning and especially the the area around Dreamers Point. And I got to say, you, you haven't seen this yet, right? I have not. I have not. It is lovely. Most of the walls are down right now, except for the, um, you know, the, the building work that's still happening. But that's that's progressing nicely. There, are, But there are a lot of things to love about this section of Epcot. Number one, um, just from a, uh, from a visual experience perspective, it's not completely flat. There's hills. So there's different elevations allowing you to see more or less depending on what angle you're at. Um, but also there are multiple little areas within the center of Epcot. So definitely distinct uh, areas with, Jim, a remarkable amount of seating. So I was there... I got there probably about 9 a.m. on Tuesday, so a couple days ago. And, you know, weather was perfect. Sun was just coming out. And there were a number of people who had grabbed their Starbucks or their coffee or whatever, or they had gone to Connections Cafe for, for breakfast and taken it back outside and were sitting so that they could face the center of Epcot and essentially just walk, watch people go by. So the, a couple of things. One, the seats themselves, the physical seating, is different in every area, which uh, makes it interesting to walk through. Number two, 
the seating is such that it is configured to towards towards the center so you can people watch you know as you're doing this there are multiple elevations there's plenty of shade i was like this is really well done for what it is it's very epcotty like more so than i than i expected i would say if i had one criticism and it is super minor and it can be addressed it needs a water feature of some kind and there are plenty of places where you could do it but I mean, this is like 80% of what we needed in the middle of the park. It's fantastic. I will be intrigued to hear what you say, because I'd love if sometime in the next couple of weeks you could circle back at night, because I hear the nighttime oh, lighting so, yeah. package is amazing. So I actually did it with Hannah a week ago, Friday night, and that's what inspired me to go back on Tuesday morning to check it out. But we ran around Friday night. Yeah, and the lighting package is fantastic. Hannah hadn't seen um, Spaceship Earth with the lighting on. So, you know, I, I told her the stories and everything. And we sat there for a good 10 minutes and just watched Spaceship Earth. It was fantastic. That was actually a great trip. Yeah. Okay. Well, good. Good to hear. Probably going to head back on Sunday, but I'll, uh, I'll, I'll try it again at night. And I got some photos. I'll, I'll throw them in the show notes. All right. On to uh, surveys. Paul sent in a Disney Plus survey that asked what perk you selected as part of the recent Disney Plus promotion. And Paul had selected the option that said, I claimed a free dining plan with the purchase of a four-night, four-day Walt Disney World Resort package. And this led to an email discussion between Paul and I about the number of families who've got Disney Plus but never been to the parks and for whom this free dining offer, Jim, is essentially the gateway drug. <laughs> do, you, do, you think this, do you think that this promo was successful for Disney? I mean, you know, the very fact that that's what they sprung for, not only a trip to Walt Disney World, but, you know, the, the, the dining package. And, God, once you... Once you experience that, Glenn, you never go back. You yeah. know, it's just sort of like, you know, it's like, oh, oh, I love this. Especially now. I mean, the the weather is great in the parks. You know, the uh, the days are a little bit longer. It's 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 super crowded. Don't get me wrong. It's uh, I mean, there was a 200 minute wait for Seven Doors Mine Train yesterday in Magic Kingdom. It was it was crazy in the parks. But you know, but overall, the the thing that. You know, we've had family members in, and we've been running around the parks for like the last week. I think the the consensus is, is that if the weather is pleasant, it doesn't take as much out of you physically, and you can do more time and more days in the parks. Well, I and let's also remember that you know I think when when people go to the park this time of year. They understand, you know, about, you know, the concept of the February school vacation and how that bumps out, you know, attendance levels at the parks. And I mean, it's sort of, you know, like when people go to Disney World with the holidays, it's like half the reason you're there is to experience the place with this level of crowd. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I was there for the cheerleading competitions. And uh, I think, Jim, uh, if uh, we don't have boom goes the dynamite as the uh, as the official cheer of this podcast, we will have done something wrong. <laughs> An unnamed listener got a Universal Orlando survey that asked about the specific reason they came to the park. And Jim, I'm going to give you this question and then, of course, the question behind the question, which is the most interesting part. So the question is this. Would you say any of the following things were specific reasons for your visit to Islands of Adventure on the particular day that you visited? And uh, one was to experience a specific ride or attraction. And there, the three things listed are Hagrid's Magical Creatures Motorbike Adventure, Jurassic World Velocicoaster, or anything else, please specify. <laughs> and then, did you go to experience a specific land or area of the park? Wizarding World of Harry Potter, Jurassic Park, or anything else, please specify. And the thing that, that surprised me then there, Jim, is that for the specific ride or attraction, Harry Potter wasn't mentioned. It was only mentioned as a land. Whereas Jurassic Park got both a mention as Velocicoaster and 
I guess I guess Hagrid's is a is a coaster too, but not the Harry Potter thing itself. But it's interesting how they they picked Hagrid's and Velocicoaster over like Forbidden Journey or uh, or anything else, right? Just yesterday, uh, we got news that uh, well, uh, they've selected a, a replacement director for the Jurassic World movie that Universal is prepping to come out just next year, uh, 2025. And it's it's Gareth Edwards uh, who directed Rogue One, a Star Wars story. And not to belabor the obvious, but they are, in fact, building that new Universal Park in the UK. In Bedford, and, yeah. Yeah, and where that gets challenging is just up the road is actually Warner Brothers' Harry Potter studio walkthrough where, yeah. you know, you're, you're actually visiting the physical studio where they shot Harry Potter. So it's, it's kind of hard in that part of the world to, uh, you know, it's like, Hey, come see, uh, you know, our fake Harry Potter, you know, which is just up the street from the re- where they shot the real Harry Potter. So I, I, I can't help but think, you know, this is a, a universal looking for reassurance to the effect of, do we need to do bring Jurassic Park or Jurassic World over to oh, the UK? Something oh, okay. See, I was focusing on the Harry Potter stuff, but you're looking at what are the alternatives. Okay, that makes more sense. Again, you got to remember that that Mark Woodbury, uh, the new head of Universal Creative, has been very clear about the fact that it's like, look, we, you know, Universal has reached a point. We don't need to license other people's IP. Right. We have lots of great IP. Right. And but at the same time, you have to reassure those above you to the effect of, look, we we have, you know, we have research that backs that up. Look at this new survey we just got in. They love Jurassic and and that Harry Potter thing. Don't worry about it. I mean, Velocicoaster would be interesting because you know, if if for Bedford, like you're you're pretty close to Alton Towers. You know, they're a couple hours away. Alden Towers has a number of very good coasters, but also, you know, to the south of you in London, you've got Thorpe, which is a coaster park. So something like Velocicoaster, which is an excellent roller coaster, right? Absolutely. You're not going to compete and build like, you know, 15 roller coasters like Thorpe does. Like it's it's not what the the theming is, but do you have enough to bring people in for the first time? I think, uh, and Velocicoaster would do that, especially because of its unique ride system. That might be a selling point there. Yeah. I would 100% go to Bedford for uh, for uh, for that park. Hang in there. Get yeah. go. I want to say three years. All right. On to listener questions. Uh, this one from Sue, speaking of Universal Orlando, who says, I noticed that Universal Orlando continues to offer their get 15 months for the price of 12 annual pass deal, which makes me think that anyone buying a pass today will most likely still be a pass holder when Epic Universe opens next year. So it's February, 15 months would be March, April, May, May, June-ish. Do you think Universal will make any special offers for pass holders surrounding the opening? Of course, the current passes don't include the Epic Universe Park, but surely there'll be an option to add it to existing passes, right? Do you think uh, pass holders will get access to park previews or any other advanced events? So yeah, I mean, 15 months puts us in the very beginning of summer, uh, 2025. And I think that's the latest that we would expect Epic Universe to open. We don't know yet about um, Epic Universe tickets, but I do expect to hear something this summer. My understanding from talking to ticket vendors is that Universal is circulating now to its third-party ticket vendors uh, details on how the ticketing system is going to change for Epic Universe. So let's assume that those third-party ticket companies are implementing those changes in the first half of this year. Let's say that hypothetically, they got the, uh, the documentation for it late last year. They're working on it the first half of this year. So sometime after June, I'd expect Universal to do some sort of acceptance testing on those ticketing systems. And then once that's done, 
we're likely to hear something about what kind of tickets will be available and how it'll all work. Everything I'm hearing, though, Jim, and tell me if you've heard different, is that there'll be some sort of reservation system or lottery for getting into Epic Universe every day. What I'm hearing is already the anticipation for this park, coupled with the design issues. And don't get me wrong, you know, that I think everybody who saw that seven minute long video, the the beautiful park at the center of the park, I'm going to want to experience that. But I, I think it's our buddy Jim Schul who pointed out it's like, that's going to be a pinch point. You know, that's going to make wandering around that park very interesting. And you know, for a while, I think Universal is going to want to limit the number of people who are getting into the park uh, just to get a sense of, well, how many people per day can we bring in here? Never mind the folks who are staying in uh, the big hotel, the Helios, as well as the two two moderates, you know, right at the edge of property, you know, who, you know, obviously are, are going to want access. I mean, it, it's there's going to be a learning curve. So, yeah. Uh, you're probably not wrong about the lottery system. Yeah. Um, uh, and my understanding is, and I think we've talked about this on the show before, but the, basically it's going to be uh, a tiered system where people who are staying on site with a multi-day stay at deluxe resorts get the highest priority, then on-site multi-day stays at the other resorts, then on-site one-day stays, then off-site multi-day stays, then off-site one-day tickets are basically the last uh, the last group of people. So, um, yeah, annual pass holders will fit in there somewhere. We'll, we'll see. But, yeah, I expect to hear something like this summer about how it's all going to work. That, that makes sense. You've yeah, been doing a series of money-saving tips. Here's one from Milton who says, uh, I just got back from a stay in Walt Disney World, and I wanted to mention something that might save other Disney Dish listeners some money. We got two bounce-back offers when checking out of our Disney hotel. The first one was a discount of up to 35%. So 35% off rooms at uh, DBC or Deluxes, 30% at Moderates, and 25% sorry at Values. And then Milton says the second was an email, but only up to 30% off. And I checked the dates. I checked the fine print in both offers that Milton sent over, and the dates were exactly the same. So uh, I guess it's no surprise, though, Jim, that... Uh, the offer that's in your room that you that Disney wants you to act on immediately is 5% more. That's one of those strike why the iron is hot. But this, and what's interesting, though, is the language here. Save up to 30% on rooms at select Disney resort hotels. So they don't do the breakdown of deluxes or DVCs or the moderates or the values. So I checked on the dates, though. The dates are exactly the same for the, uh, for the coverage. And, and more specifically... I note that the only summer days that these discounts do not cover are May 24th to the 26th, which is Memorial Day weekend, and then August 30th, 31st, and September 1st, which means if Tiana's Bioadventure is opening sometime in the summer, which is June, July, or August, then these discounts actually cover those dates. So if you're thinking about going, would it be economically viable to just book one night right now? at a Disney hotel. Will you please share the, the other date that you note is technically not summer? Oh, October uh, 1st to the 26th is excluded from these as well. And I'm thinking that's because it's Halloween and Columbus Day and stuff like that, which is, as we know, a much getting to be much more popular. But at the same time, the fact that, you know, that that range of dates is, is blocked out. I mean, I, I think that's a pretty strong indication that at the very least by then, you know, Tiana's is up and running and, you know, and again, as you mentioned, 
you know, during a time when it's, you know, uh, Mickey's not, not so scary is running and the park is decorated for Halloween. Food and wine yes. is running. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, there we go. You know, that the, they don't need to do anything to get people to come through the door. They will already be coming through the door. Right. So so Disney has said summer 2024 for China's bioadventure. We noted that uh, summer technically ends in late September and 10 days later, this discount ends. So... I mean, maybe maybe the unofficial opening is earlier in the summer than the official opening falls when the <laughs> people would book this October first to the twenty sixth trip without discounts. Same time, just uh, you know, mentioning social media. Just this weekend, you know, <laughs> how many shots did you see of a water moving through the flume? And then what was it? Just yesterday, they had dozens of the logs parked in the flume. So it's like they're 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 testing, they're moving. Oh yeah, one hundred percent. All right, Jim, we got time for one more listener question, uh, and this one's from Jeff, who says, do you have any data on how often Radiator Springs Racers is down at park opening? And when it is down, on average, when does it open? The ride seems to be closed more often than not at Rope Drop. I'm curious what the data says. So, uh, so Jeff, unfortunately, I don't have data for Disneyland, but I mentioned uh, Jeff's email uh, because of this. So every year, we, um, you, Jim, you know that we cooperate or we, we work with various universities around the country who are interested in studying some aspect of Disney park operations. And so uh, one of the groups that I'm working with is at Wake Forest University. And I've, uh, I've asked them uh, this question, given the, uh, I, I gave them a spreadsheet that shows for every day in 2023, for every attraction in the park, whether that attraction was down at rope drop, right? So for example, I know that on 40% of days in 2023, Rise of the Resistance was down at Rope Drop. And I said, okay, assume that you can ride two rides during the 30 minutes for early theme park entry. If you know the downtime, if, the, if you know the probability that each ride is going to be down at Rope Drop, and you know what the average weight is throughout the day, you can calculate sort of the expected value of trying to ride any two pairs of rides in the park. So given what you know about wait times and downtime, what two rides would you recommend to people to go at rope drop to maximize their expected value? And here's where I went with that. So like Rise of the Resistance is down on average 40% of the days at rope drop. And Rock and Roller Coaster before the refurbishment was down, and I'm, I'm blanking on the number, but I believe it was like right, out, right at 25%, right? So let's say that you can save... You know, again, don't quote me on the numbers here, but just as an example, suppose you can save two hours in line by rope dropping Rise of the Resistance, and you can save an hour in line by rope dropping Rock and Roller Coaster as well, right before early theme park entry ends, right? So that's potentially three hours of time savings. But if you multiply the two probabilities of the rides being down, it's less than 50%. So your expected time savings isn't three hours. It's basically half of three hours because the rides are only going to be available less than half the days. So given that, is there any other combination of rides that are more reliable that maybe don't have the same wait times, but your expected value is greater because they're more likely to be up? And the thing that the thing that brought this home was so what I was doing a I was doing a uh, you know, Hannah was here with her uh, boyfriend Connor who we love um, a couple weeks ago. And do you remember how when when you and I were, went in the parks with Jim Scholl, you and I got into the park and then we waited an hour for Jim Scholl's ticket to be validated. <laughs> <laughs> yes, and, and, yes. I'm, and and the entire time, right, yep. I am screaming at Jim, who is on the other side of the tap style, like, how does it feel to be a guest? <laughs> right? <laughs> right? Okay. So 
we 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 get into the parks and uh, we get into Hollywood Studios first because that's what Hannah wanted to do, and, and Connor's a huge um, Star Wars fan. So we we decide that we're going to get them Magic Band Pluses. Have I told you the story? Oh yes, that that that, that you know you bought them and then and one of them didn't work. Didn't work. Oh yes, and, and I'm like, this can't be the experience that people have first in the parks. Anyway, so this is the uh, this is the thing that we're working on basically for that, and then. Uh, um, if it, if the Wake Forest students can do this for the studios, uh, we're going to do Magic Kingdom next because I'm not entirely sure that Seven Dwarfs Mine Train is always the best choice for a rope drop. Anyway, we'll uh, we'll let you know what the math works out to be. Okay, no, no, no. Love to hear how that works out. And I love that there are kids that are putting this under this the resume. Like, yeah, I calculated some doubt. <laughs> no, no, that's a, the real time research in the real world. Exactly, know, so. exactly. All right, folks, we're going to take a quick commercial break. When we come back, Jim tells us what happened when Walt decided that Tomorrowland should be a part of Disneyland's opening day lineup. We'll be right back. I have reached that point in my life where, instead of being envious of the cool new car that just drove by or the smart-looking suit that someone else is wearing, I now lust after luggage. Seriously, I was the guy at the airport who'd sit at the gate and then look around at all of the other people who were getting ready to board, and I would eyeball their bags. Because, to be honest, I was tired of going through security and then on the other side having to spend five minutes repacking and reorganizing my bag. I I wanted something that was easy to use that also looked good. That's honestly how I first discovered BASE. I mean, have you seen this line of luggage? They were created by actress Shay Mitchell, and her goal was to design this line of sleek and affordable bags, luggage, and accessories that, while they looked handsome, were also super functional, uh, that then made it possible to travel effortlessly. Take, for example, Bases Weekender. I've been using this bag for a while now, and it's so big that I can cram a couple of days worth of clothes into this thing and still have room for a lot of my podcasting equipment. And then when you factor in all of the cool features that base bags have, like those 360-degree gliding wheels, their cushion handles, not to mention that built-in weight indicator, which means that you're never going to be surprised by unexpected baggage fees once you get up to the ticket counter. And did I mention that Base's line of luggage has received over 30,000 five-star reviews? Look, if you want to be the one at the gate at the airport with the handsome-looking bag, right now, BASE is offering our listeners 15% off your first purchase by visiting basetravel.com backslash Disney Dish. Again, go to basetravel.com backslash Disney Dish for 15% off your first purchase. That's base, B-E-I-S, travel.com slash Disney Dish. We thank them for sponsoring today's show. Today's episode is brought to you by BetterHelp. Hey, you know 2024 is a leap year, right? Meaning that we all get an extra day at the end of February, so use it wisely, okay? Which brings me to an interesting question. What would you do if you were suddenly gifted with an extra hour of free time every day? Well, I don't know about you, but if I found myself in that situation, two words immediately come to mind, and they are power nap. But then again, when it comes to time, what's the old saying? Yesterday is history, tomorrow's a mystery, today is a gift. That's why we call it the present. And if you've been thinking lately that perhaps you're just not making the very best use of your time, well, maybe talking with a therapist might help you get your priorities in order. And if that's something you've seriously been considering, well, allow me to introduce you to BetterHelp. 
BetterHelp is entirely online and it's designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Look, a few years back, I was a basket of bad habits. And talking with the therapist, that then gave me the tools and skills I needed to effectively get out of my own way. So come on, learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash DisneyDish today to get 10% off your first month. Again, that's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash DisneyDish. We thank them for sponsoring today's show. All right, Jim, I, uh, I love that uh, uh, we're talking about this because, as I mentioned before the break, I was in the parks with Hannah and uh, Connor, her boyfriend, earlier. And one of the things that we did was sat right up front for Happily Ever After one night because Hannah really wanted to see it. And, and I was telling Connor, this, uh, who had never seen the show before, like, you know, watch out for Tinkerbell at this particular moment. So I gave him like a 30-second uh, advance notice. And then afterwards, I told him the story of Baby New Year 1961. There we go. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> you know, yeah, it's, it's, it's always interesting if you're in the right place for that flight path on this particularly humid evening, because sometimes Tink will run out of gas about 10 feet before yeah. the roof of the Tomorrowland Terrace. And if you watch her, she literally has inside of that teeny tiny costume a piece of wood with rope tied around it. And you'll see Tink quickly unravel it and then throw the rope yeah. to a cast member who's just out of sight on the rooftop. And they will then pull Tinkerbell in. It's like the Pope pocket, uh, pocket fishing pole. Yeah. There we go. There we go. But by then, Tink is literally turned off her wings, turned off the, the lights on her costume, and, you know, just please turn your eyes back to the fireworks. <laughs> Don't the look castle. at me. Avert your eyes. Avert your <laughs> but you, you mentioned this, and it, it, it's true because over a line that is that long, physics actually comes into play. Things like humidity and temperature and uh, wind are important factors, yeah. All right, so anyway, again, we're talking, we're just talking about the roof of Tomorrowland Terrace, and but today we're talking about Tomorrowland at Disneyland. And, and by the way, I, you know, Disneyland was always supposed to have a, a world of a world of tomorrow. By the way, that's what the this corner of Walt's Family Fun Park was originally called, the world of tomorrow, not Tomorrowland. And I, I we know this because Len and I have access to the Disneyland Prospectus, the, the document that was drawn up in 53 to uh, to share with prospective investors, you know, that, you know, explain how a Disneyland would be laid out, uh, what the park's attractions might be. And that document describes the world of tomorrow as as being on your right when you walked in, uh, when you walked up Main Street and, and reached the hub. And by the way, just in case you're wondering, on this very early on 
version of Disneyland. The entrance is Fantasyland. If you're standing in the center of the hub, it would have been straight ahead of you. I, 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 if you use the, the clock face analogy, it's it's the 12 noon position. Um, if you use, uh, continue with the clock face, at the 9 o'clock position would have been Frontier Country, not Frontier Land. And then uh, as for true life Adventureland, uh, not Adventureland, that was actually supposed to be built then uh, backstage between Main Street and the World of Tomorrow. So it had an entrance at the five o'clock position. Really? So uh, the mirror image of where it is now. All right. Okay. So back to the World of Tomorrow. Now, if you if you were to explore this part of the park, which again described in the Disneyland perspectives, was supposed to be a factual and scientific exposition of things to come. Uh, again, you take a right off the hub, and then you stepped onto a moving sidewalk. Uh, which again, uh, the, the, quoting directly from the prospectus here, would have carried you effortlessly into the world of tomorrow, where fascinating exhibits of the miracles of science and industry are displayed. And and you know, you again, you're going by on the sidewalk, you would have seen the buildings where the these things were going to be displayed, and you would note, "Ooh, I got to go back and check that out." But you know, you're then delivered deep into the heart of Tomorrowland, and as you stepped off. There would have been the giant rocket spaceship to the moon. And now, Len, just want to take a pause here. Rocket spaceship to the moon. Rocket spaceship transportation device. <laughs> well, there we go. From the Department of Redundancy v- Department. Vessel. You know, just, you know, so, I mean, rocket to the moon, I get spaceship to the moon. You know, I, uh, rocket sh- spaceship. It, it's kind of a belt and suspenders thing. Here's the thing. You know? it's, the, it's the late 50s and space travel was not yet at the forefront of the American mind. So you kind of got to explain stuff. Okay, so anyway, uh, back to the marquee attraction in this part of the park. Again, the the rocket ship was supposed to be the World of Tomorrow's weenie. Uh, That thing you saw looming in the distance compel you to go deeper into the park. And uh, we talked about this before. The castle was uh, the fantasy lads weenie and the Mark Twain. But what's interesting, uh, Sleeping Beauty Castle is 77 feet tall. Moonliner was only 76 feet tall and the mark twain well it was only 28 feet tall but but it is 105 feet long and it does literally come with a bell and a whistle <laughs> you know, so it's like it, it would make its presence no it's like right? hannah she's not particularly tall but my god is she loud okay there we go okay but 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 here's the part of the this that i love okay uh, back to flight to the moon Prospectus goes to say that once guests are safety belted into their seats, their trip through space will be scientifically accurate. And it's like, again, what's kind of intriguing about guests needing to be safety belted into Flight to the Moon. Uh, When Disneyland first opened, the other signature attraction for Tomorrowland was the Autopia. Which was, again, quoting from the prospectus, the little parkway system where children drive scale model motor cars over a modern freeway. And and, and this is the thing. That's the piece of language, a modern freeway, because in the 1950s, freeways were still a relatively new thing. Hell, the first freeway in the western United States, the Pasadena Freeway, now the 110. When was the Eisenhower... Was the Eisenhower Highway Act also in the 50s? There we go. Is the, that the, literally okay. the year after Disneyland <laughs> was it really? opened. Disneyland yeah. predates the Eisenhower Highway System. There we go. The, the National Interstate Highway System. Yep. Yeah. So, 
So anyway, think about this. You were a kid back in the 1950s, and part of the thrill of the whole Disneyland experience is that you're, you and your family actually got to travel on the newly completed interstate highway, now known as the Five. And, you know, and Dad hammers down the accelerator, and he got the DeSoto all the way up to 50 <laughs> miles an hour. Oh, my God. You know. so, Say what you will. The yeah. inter- interstate highway system is a modern marvel. Right. The highway system enables so much of the United States economy that uh, that it is by it is a crown jewel of the U.S. transportation network. No, no, no. Absolutely. But, but OK, but, but think about this. You're a kid. You get to Disneyland. You've just been on the highway. And then, oh, my God, there's a highway here, too. And it's just like the one dad drove on. And it's got kid sized cars. It's like I, I get to do this. I don't care how long yeah, the line 100%. is. We're doing that. Yeah. You go on the Moonliner. You have to be safety belted. OK. A uh, hundred yards away. There's Disneyland's Autopia ride where kids could get behind the wheel of a real miniature car and get the thing up to 11 miles an hour. And nobody is saying, hey, kid, put on your seatbelt. Yeah, were, were there seatbelts in the Autopia when it first opened? No, no. In fact, Len, the seatbelt use in the United States was entirely voluntary till December of 84. I mean, only in the past 40 years, you know, state, you know, in fact, your, your home, the state of New York, was the first to require vehicle occupants to wear seatbelts. And just so you understand, the state I live in now, New Hampshire, still doesn't require people to, to wear seatbelts. Really? Seat Yep, that explains the state motto, live free or die. You know, just a- <laughs> yeah, We prefer you take the first option, but if you want to take the second option. Because I remember, I'm old enough to remember when seatbelts became mandatory and there was all this talk about like, you know, it's communism and stuff like that. I'm like, we're just trying not to pay the hospital bills of people who are too dumb to know better, right? Like that's- No, no, that's it exactly. Still in New Hampshire- they have the argument, well, I'm at a crash. How do I get out of my car? <laughs> it's like, well, first of all, you crashed. We start with that point. So. Okay, so so seatbelts were not mandatory when Disneyland opened the Autopia. But let me ask this question, because every time I look at old cars, invariably, Jim, the dashboard, like where the glove compartment is for passengers, has some sort of like metal triangular shaped shelf that <laughs> that would basically uh, take people take people's heads off at the neck in even the slightest fender bender, and I'm like, well, no, Jay <laughs> Jay Leno used to do this amazing piece of stand up where I, I want to say his first car was a <laughs> was a Buick Roadmaster, where he said, you know, it had a radio knob that was shaped like a dagger. Yeah, you know, exactly. <laughs> Actually, the first accident you had would kill you, right? You no, know, that's it exactly. He talked about how if you hit something, you know, the car was so big you'd free fall for a couple of seconds before you hit the dashboard. I mean, it was just, you know, just cars were, were designed differently then. But on the other hand, the Autopia opens at Disneyland. It is so hugely popular, Len, that by July of 56, Disneyland has opened a second version of this attraction, the Junior Autopia, which built back towards Fantasyland. And then just nine months after that, April of 57, the park opens a third, the Disneyland's Midget Autopia, which would put... <laughs> Disneyland's littlest drivers behind the wheel, but still not wearing a seatbelt. Amazing. Three Autopias in the same park. I know like Legoland has um, its version of of Autopia, and then it's got a junior version of that. And those are some of the lowest capacity, slowest loading rides I've ever seen in a theme park. Like, Like their hourly capacity 
rivals that of a water park slide. It's that low, couple hundred people an hour tops. I mean, I remember like measuring the junior Autopia, whatever it was called, at Legoland Windsor. And like my first calculation was that it could handle 60 guests an hour. And I'm like, 60 guests an hour is, why would you even have that attraction? That doesn't make any sense. And at the same time, you know, when you're doing, you know, an attraction count like that and you think, I really should have gotten a coffee, you know, just sort of get just something to keep me awake while I'm waiting, you know, the, the minute plus it takes to load people in. By the way, it's worth noting that with the Junior Autopia, which, by the way, January 59 got renamed the Fantasyland Autopia, that was when the guardrail system that we know today was put in place. Likewise, you know, and again, it just, just cracks me. That, this is when they put bumpers in the front and the back of the vehicles. Because when the Autopia opened in July of 55, these miniature cars didn't have a guardrail, didn't really? have bumpers. It was Mad Max Beyond Thunderdome in 1955. No, no, no that's it exactly. And, and, you know, I mean, uh, between the cast members that would go home black and blue from kids driving into their legs to the kids who would go home either black and blue from where they hit the council you just described, the triangular thing, or having knocked their teeth out on the steering wheel. I mean, they're kids. They're not permanent teeth. Let's face it. So the no guardrails, no bumpers, no seatbelts. It was a different timeline. I, I don't know what to tell you. We used to be a proper country, Jim. I would pay money, like valid American currency, to go on the Tomorrowland Speed right now without guardrails, bumpers, or uh, uh, the seatbelt's fine. But like, you know, maybe without a speed limiter, that would be amazing. It would be. It would be. Now, what's kind of interesting is, uh, look, you know, yes, there was huge demand for... Autopia at Disneyland Park in the States. By the way, this story comes straight from our, our buddy Jim Shul, our partner at the Disney Impact uh, thing we're doing over on Patreon. Just because an attraction is popular in the States doesn't mean that it will be popular overseas. And Jim told me the story of the Autopia that opened at Hong Kong Disneyland in July of 2006. And uh, this Tomorrowland attraction, which actually opens 10 months after the park opens in September 2005, state-of-the-art land. Uh, it features eco-friendly all electric cars with onboard audio. In fact, you'll love this because, again, they're they're electric. They're largely silent. They actually had to put in a sound chip that made a gasoline-powered car noise. You know, to the effect of half the half the fun of driving is that pop 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 noise. Um, so, and they create this amazing layout. So, again, for the Hong Kong Autopia, you, you first drive through a lush jungle, and then you're on an alien landscape, and and Honda, you know. Honda gets on board as the sponsor of the thing. So they 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 build it, they throw open the doors in July of 2006, and nobody comes. Really? Is it a cultural thing? They just they don't have the same? Absolutely no. You nailed it in one. Kids in Southern California in 1955. I mean, pre-wars were new. And, you know, again, it's California. It's a, got a car culture. Car culture, yeah. Hong Kong, on the other hand, 2006, Hong Kong is a densely populated city you know, a population uh, 2021, a most recent uh, survey, 7.4 million residents. Few of them own a car. So for folks who actually came to Hong Kong Disneyland on public transportation. Yeah, they took the train. Yeah, yeah the, the, the notion of the, what's the thrill of getting behind the, the, the wheel of a car? It's foreign to them. In fact, the other thing you'll love, and, and be sure to ask Shul about this, he has aerial photographs of the entire Hong Kong Disneyland Resort. 
Len, the loneliest place on the planet <laughs> is the parking it. lot at Hong Kong Disneyland. All right, is and it really? Fact, oh. Well, no, no. You, in fact, they they built it. It kind of um, the country bear at Disneyland thing. Again, they were so sure that you know this was going to be so popular. They actually built an overflow parking lot, so you have this you know this handful of cars in you know the the real parking lot, and then you have the overflow parking lot. Which looks like no one has ever parked there in the history of man. <laughs> the the paint on the lines on the asphalt is still no, pristine. No, that's it exactly. But yeah, to ask him about that. You but, say unused parking lot. I hear expansion mm-hmm. pad. But okay, <laughs> okay. You know the interesting thing though, it, it, it's got to be cultural because we've talked before about how, like in Disneyland Paris, the French are uh, are really like the American West, and especially things like Frontierland Shooting Arcade, where they get to shoot guns. Right. So, but, but driving is not the same thing. Yeah. That's interesting. No, not at all. All Not at all. But anyway, long story short, this underutilized attraction chugs along till June of 2016, where it's shut down. Original plan was this version of Autopia would eventually be transformed into an Avengers campus, similar to the one at California Adventure and the one at Walt Disney News Park in Paris. However, given uh, the current Troubles that the Marvel movie franchises experience. I'm, I'm not sure that that's actually going to happen, but um, okay. Yeah. Okay. Now back to Disneyland's world of tomorrow. Again, as described in the prospectus from 1953. So again, we have our giant rocket to the moon ride. We have the Autopia. We have our moving sidewalk that takes guests into the land and then various scientific displays along the way. And again, you know this, Lent, because mm-hmm. you've read their perspective. There were all sorts of things in there that never got built at oh, the God. park. Yeah, it's basially a hodgepodge or wish list at this point, more than a perspective. Oh, no, no, totally. I mean, you have things like Lilliputian land where you, you could have ridden a version of that miniature steam uh, train that Walt had in his backyard at Homeby Hills. And you also could have eaten miniature ice cream cones and the world's smallest hot dogs. And <laughs> likewise, Disneyland was supposed to be the world headquarters of the Mickey Mouse Club. And the physical location of the club was supposed to be this elaborate treehouse that was going to be built out on Treasure Island, which was based on the night Disney 1950 film, based on the, the Robert Louis Stevens novel. And then not to Forget about the television production facility that was going to be built inside of the Main Street Opera House. So, which meant if you visited Disneyland on the right day, you could sit on the production of the next episode of ABC's weekly Disneyland TV show or maybe a live broadcast coming out of the park. And, wow. And by the way, one other weird little detail buried down in the prospectus was that the World of Tomorrow was supposed to be home to the exciting World of Tomorrow TV show, which, by the way, was supposed to be an entirely separate program from the weekly Disneyland TV show. Really? So Walt was going to do a World of Tomorrow TV show. How far did that get? If you remember television from the, this was really more of a 60s thing, by the 70s, it kind of died out, but on on. Sunday nights, there would be like this half hour long show, I want to say it was CBS or ABC, where it was literally about the latest scientific discoveries. And this is where you'd see like the computer car. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, that's it exactly. Yes, yes, this this wonderful computer that's it's so small it will fit in a giant warehouse. You know, know. someday they'll be the size of a refrigerator and then things get interesting. There there you go. Turning an orange grove out in Anaheim into a family pun park is an expensive proposition, which is why as the cost of Disneyland began to mount, first five million, then seven million, then nine, then eleven, the thinking was, you know, some of this stuff can wait till phase two. 
So that's what happened with the Laputian land. That's what happened with the world headquarters of Mickey Mouse Club and this television production facility we were just talking about. And it also happened with Disneyland's World of Tomorrow. And in fact, original plan for the park is if you visited Disneyland in the summer of 55, you walked up to the hub and looked to your right, you would have seen a construction fence on the side of which would have been painted the site of future sites, Tomorrowland, coming in 1956. And as you mentioned, top of the show, this was the plan right up until January 15th, 1955, which, not to put too fine a point on it, is just six months and two days from when Disneyland was supposed to be unveiled on live television. Jim, as, as someone who has done his fair share of project planning, I would love to have had the antacid concession oh, God, in yeah. Glendale when, yeah. when Walt goes into his project team and says, hey, what are you guys doing this summer? Yeah. <laughs> now let me tell you what you're doing this summer. <laughs> Well, no, that's it exactly. He Holy has to cow. tell these guys, the, the, his designers and the construction team, that the world of tomorrow just cannot wait till 1956. That some version of this part of the park has to be ready for the live broadcast on ABC, which is already scheduled for July of 1955. Now, why Walt changed his mind, more importantly, how the Imagineers met this impossible deadline, we will get to next week as part of the second and final installment in this series. Are they sitting around their desks going, you know what? Aluminum. Aluminum is the metal of the future. We're going to do an entire pavilion on aluminum. <laughs> Not far from that, I'm sure. Yeah. No, no. You, you are, are scarily close to the, the kind of conversation. This explains why, you know, during Tony Baxter's movie night, I was able to, to see those home movies of... Tomorrowland, literally the week before opening. And Jim, there's no concrete poured seven days before the park was supposed to open. Yeah. All right, we'll talk about that next week. All right, folks, that's going to do it for the show today. You can help support our show by subscribing over at patreon.com slash Media, where we're posting exclusive shows every week. And I think on Friday, we posted a show called Picture This, with design and construction photos from Toontown from Jim Schull's personal collection. Check it out at patreon.com slash Media. On next week's show, we're going to continue that story of how, surprise, it's Tomorrowland, got built. And you can find more of Jim at jimhillmedia.com and more of me, Len, at touringplans.com. We're produced spectacularly by Eric Hersey, who'll be sharing Koopa Wahine Hersey's recipe for huli huli chicken and garlic shrimp at the Island Crafters Market on Sunday, March 10th, 2024, at the Ala Moana Center, starting at 10 a.m. in beautiful downtown Honolulu, Hawaii. While Eric's doing that, please go into iTunes and Raider Show, and tell us what you'd like to hear next. For Jim, this is Len. We will see you on the next show.